Today we're going to carry on in our series on the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read most of this chapter, not all of it. We're going to stop at verse 39. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who would committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, 
this man was the son of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It's present with us, spoken to us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would stir up our hearts to see again what the centurion saw. Would you help us? Please remove from our eyes the things that blind us, remove from our ears the things that stop up our hearing. For all of us whose hearts have grown hard in the past day, week, month, year, the entirety of our lives, may our hearts today be soft again. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is what the whole story of the Gospel of Mark is about. This is everything that Mark has been moving towards for so much of his Gospel. That for the past several chapters of the Gospel of Mark, in the context of this confrontation that Jesus is having with the people who are in charge of the temple, now, the sort of in the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem, is the culmination of this confrontation. And this, this thing, of course, is at the center of what the early church will be preaching, is the events of, of this passage right here. Probably a decade and a half before the Gospel of Mark is written, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, the early Christians in that city in Corinth, and says that this thing, the foolishness of the cross, is a stumbling block for everybody, Jew and Gentile, that everybody who, who hears of it cannot understand, and they're repelled by what they hear because of the offensiveness of, of what is being said. They will say the combination of, of two things, that this person is the Son of God, the King of Israel, which is in question throughout this passage that we just read, and that he was crucified on a Roman cross. Roman crucifixion is horrifying. It is, it is meant to be horrifying. The purpose of death in this way is to horrify people who see it. It is an instrument of public shame and torture that Rome uses in a public place so that you receive a very clear message as you walk by that you do not mess with Rome. Roman crucifixion is not a viable punishment for Roman citizens. It's too, it's too terrible to be permitted for the worst offenders of Roman citizens. It is only given to non-Roman citizens who do the very worst things. There's lots of people who are crucified in Roman history. But even the Romans themselves who use it are horrified by the nature of it. They have a system of torture that they have put in place that is incredibly effective at communicating this very clear message. Do not mess with Rome. And Jesus, it's very clear, leading up to this in Mark's story, does not deserve what is about to happen to him. That things are, are being angled in a certain direction that Jesus has not 
found himself in the company of these kinds of criminals. He doesn't deserve what is happening to him. And yet the early Christians will say with absolute clarity that this is exactly what must happen. Peter will stand up in the earliest Christian sermon and he will say that you crucified him, but it was according to God's own definite plan and foreknowledge that this thing would happen. As you read the, the account of the crucifixion in the Gospel of Mark, you should hear the questions of the people there taking in the public spectacle and shame of Jesus' naked crucifixion. As they taunt him, and they hurl these insults at him, and they say to him, you, you said you would tear down a temple and rebuild it in three days. You, you said you would save Israel, and you cannot even save yourself. And it is the deep irony of Mark's gospel that they are both so right and so wrong at the same time. Because Mark has shown you for the entirety of his gospel that Jesus has incredible power. He is the master over every enemy that has ever been thrown at him. He overcomes natural disaster. He overcomes spiritual evil. He overcomes darkness of sickness and all kinds. With a word, with a gesture, with a thought, with a breath, Jesus is entirely empowered to deal with everything. Everything. He has every ability to take himself down off the cross. And yet he cannot come down from the cross. Precisely because of what he intends to do, which they cannot see happening right in front of their very eyes. He, he's already asked in the passage that we read last week in Mark chapter 14, in this agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is another way, would you take this cup from me? But Mark chapter 15 is the answer that there is no other way, that he, he cannot step down, that in fact this is the defined plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that Jesus actually cannot come from the cross, though he has all power. That in fact, even when he is offered another cup, when he's offered the cup of drugged wine to sort of dull his senses to try to endure what he is facing, he does not drink that cup so that he may drink to the full depths, the cup of the wrath of God. Why is this happening? Why is this the inescapable plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It is not because Jesus cannot talk himself away from the plans and the schemes of those who oppose him. It is not because of the power of Rome that he cannot escape. It is not because of any of those things that he would take up 
the cup that is offered to him in the cross. It is because of the darkness. Mark says, giving this inexplicable detail for you, that from the moment of his crucifixion, for hours, there's darkness over the land. And it is because of this darkness that Jesus must and does do what he does in his crucifixion. Because God takes seriously the darkness of the world. This is the darkness that Jesus has identified as his primary enemy. Rome is not the darkness. The people think that Rome is the darkness, but the wrong. Imperial power arrayed and aligned with the violence of the empire, using its might to crush all who stand in its way. It is dark, but Rome itself is not the darkness. And that is why they're confused that Jesus does not attack Rome. And the, the Pharisees, the temple authorities, are not the darkness. Though all of Jesus' friends might want Jesus to do the same thing they do and take up the sword and fight them and oppose them so that the darkness would not win. It is not the Pharisees, it is not the temple authorities, it is not the elders and the Sanhedrins of Israel that is the darkness. They are in alliance with the darkness in this moment. But the darkness is the darkness that has moved in to strangle the world from the earliest days of humanity's story. The darkness is the thing that makes people, billions of people through all of history, cry out the same thing that Jesus cries out in quotation of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the felt sense of the darkness of evil that has descended upon the place of Jesus' crucifixion that Jesus has decided and determined and resolved to meet at the place of his cross. This is why Jesus is crucified. The darkness that descends upon this place is the evil and the horror of watching innocent children have cancer. The darkness that descends upon the mount is the darkness that would cover and cloak and hide the abused. The darkness that descends upon the mountain to meet God there is the darkness that leaks and leeches out from every heart in humanity. It is the darkness that makes you walk into a room and at the same time believe that everybody is staring at you and that nobody sees you at the same time. It is the darkness that you have contributed to, participated with, allied with, every time that you have fed the most shameful desires of your own heart. It is the darkness that drives people insane in pursuit of their own identity and own fulfillment, a bottomless quest in which there is no fulfillment. So that it will lead the most successful people that you can ever imagine to lead 
a life dedicated to their own pleasure and purpose as defined by themselves, and it would leave them on their deathbed grasping for why they cannot find the bottom of their own meaning and purpose. It is the kind of darkness that would drive you to do things that you cannot even understand or explain about yourself. It is the kind of darkness that would cause you and me to live in, in communities and in homes with people that we love and yet, with reasons we cannot explain, treat those very people as the worst people who we would unleash upon them all of the very worst parts of our personality, our own self-seeking, our own self-obsession, our own self-glorification constantly leads us to put darkness into our own homes with the people that we sleep right next to, saying that we love in one moment and our hearts the next moment, cursing them to their own grave because they can't do the smallest thing according to what you yourself want. It is the darkness that drives you to be terrified of things that have never and will never even happen to you. The imagination of anxiety and paranoia, of fear that, that pervades a world that you live in. It is a kind of fear and paranoia and darkness that hunts little children. So the children in schools will try to behave like adults and will seek to find anybody from their peers to tell them that they're worth something. That is the darkness that meets Jesus at the cross. And it is that darkness for which God has all of his wrath. Because God hates the dark. It is a terrible, terrible serpent. As black as the night that has wound its way around the neck of creation, strangling the life out of everything that God intends to love. And God hates the dark. And so Jesus will not be distracted by Rome or Jerusalem or any other cause because his eyes are on the darkness. And what you see in his own death is that every time, every single corner of humanity in bewilderment and pain has asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the answer of God that he has heard. He has not forsaken his people. He has not lost you or me or anyone else in the dark. The crucifixion is God's own resolution to go into the darkest of the darkest places and to take up that own cry of forfeit, of awful surrender and hopelessness, that the world has been abandoned to all the darkness that we ourselves both cannot hide and can't deal with. 
And God himself has heard the question for all of history up to that moment and every moment beyond. Every single human heart that has wondered or said aloud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is the answer of God that he has not He has not forsaken his creation. He has not abandoned the field. He has not not ignored all of the darkness that has invaded and pressed upon you from without. He has seen all of the suffering, all of the evil that has, has invaded his world that he made to be good. He has seen all of the evil that has flown out of my own heart, out of my own mind, out of mine own mouth into the world. He has seen every part of it and has not abandoned or forsaken his creation. The cross is the stake in the ground that God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon his world and he will enter into the darkness of evil. He will drink the full depths of the wrath that it deserves for himself so that the light would come on. Mark says that when Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is ripped from top to bottom. Because the temple is not a place where the glory of God will hide in an inner sanctum anymore. It is the opening of God's own curtain into the world so the light will come in. And the immediate effect of the ripping open of the veil of this world is that one of these ones, one of the ones allied with the darkness, will immediately see, and he'll be the first person in the Gospel of Mark to speak the truth. Truly, he was the Son of God. The cross is a rending open of the world. The cross is the doorway through which the light will stream into the world so that the early Christians will begin to confess together that he is the light of the world. The cross is not the ending death of a young man from Israel whose life is over in shame and and defeat. The cross is the sign of God's victory in the world. The cross is the sign that the shame of all of your sin, the thing that pumps darkness and evil into the world, the thing that should bear you down into your grave with shame, has been taken on by the shame of the Son of God so that you might instead receive the honor of his love and his acceptance. The cross is not another testimony that the darkness 
takes yet another one. The cross is a testament that even today, though we still see the signs of darkness everywhere, God has put a pledge in the ground of history that he will not forsake the story. And he will end what he has begun. The cross is to deliver you out of the kingdom of darkness, as Paul would say, and transfer you into the kingdom of his son. And the cross is for every single person that would hear and see the same thing that that Roman officer saw. You can be here and you could be trapped in the same sin that has beset you and sunk its talons into you for year after year after year. And the cross will speak a better word over you than your own sin and misery will speak to you. The shame and the perpetual nature of your defeat does not match the glory and the honor of the crucified Jesus. And so if you've begun to lose hope, the cross is a sign to you that hope will have its say over you. If you will put your trust in the same one that the Roman centurion saw, you can be here and have looked at a Christian cross as part of your life for your entire life story and you can think that this is just a sort of set of historical facts that you have already heard, you've assimilated, you've put in your pocket, and you've moved beyond. And you may be sitting here and wondering why your life still looks the way it does, and you may even have begun to lose hope that your life will ever look any sort of different. Because of the way that you just can't shake the way that you are. The cross is not something that you see you understand, you put in your pocket and move beyond. The cross is the shape and the shadow that dominates your entire life because you will never move beyond it. All of your perpetual failure is exactly the reason that Jesus went to the cross for you. It is the darkness that still stalks you that you should be better, you should be past. And Jesus always knew that you couldn't, that you wouldn't. It's for your darkness that Jesus died. And if you've begun to lose hope, come and see the crucified God. And if you're here today and you have come into and under the delusion that because this is the mess that you made, you must fix it yourself. You must, in some way, clean yourself up to present yourself to God and, and be right, which makes all kinds of sense. It's the most logical and rational thing. You have done wrong against someone, you better do right, and then you can be right with him. But God is telling you the end of the story from the beginning. You cannot make yourself right. There is a cup that you yourself should drink. Judgment on sin, of your sin. And Jesus drank the cup for you. 
You can't. And if you continue to pursue making yourself right enough for Him, you will end your life in the grip of the serpent. He will strangle you to death and never let you go. But the Son of God is telling you in His cross that He would be victorious for you on your behalf, in your place, so that you would have what you could never earn, His own life in exchange for yours. This is the audacity and the foolishness of the cross. There is no other plan. This is the only thing that could be done. This is the only thing, the only way it could have gone. He couldn't come off the cross. He couldn't. Because this is what he wanted to do for you. Because he loves you. It's the only explanation. He doesn't need me. I know me. Why would God need me? If God needed me, he'd be a, a needy beggar. And what I get from Jesus is better than that. He doesn't need me. He wanted me. He did all of this for me. Because he, he wanted me. I, I can't get over that. And he's so loving that he wanted every single one of us that way. I can't, I can't explain love like that. He couldn't get off the cross because he wanted you, he wanted me. And in his great love, came and got me. The sum of my story, the whole, is in the shape of his cross. The question is, do you want yours to take this shape? Nobody can answer that question. Mark is putting the question to you. But nobody can answer it except you. Do you see the world ripped open? Do you see the light of God in his cross? And do you want the cup of fellowship? 
that he would extend to you. Jesus came for you. I hope that you will come and receive what he's offered in his own body and blood today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But come find your healing and rescue in the crucified God. Let me pray. Living God, who has looked into and entered into the depths of the darkness and the grave, for the sake of your people, for my sake, we see the cross as a symbol on buildings and on jewelry art and installations. We pass by your cross, barely taking note. Yet this is truly the crux of history. It is the crux of my story. And all who would come and find their shelter in its shadow. Father, I pray for those who have given up hope, who have followed you for a long time, who have been beset and besieged by the sorrows of this world, the loss, suffering of this life, by the depths of their own sin, the darkness that they have chosen time and time again. And Father, for your people who have begun to lose hope, I pray that they would see the cross today. And they would hear and receive that you would never leave them or forsake them. Not even here at their worst. Father, I pray for anyone who's here today and anyone who is not here today that we love and is on our minds, who have tried so hard to define their life by their own pursuits, their own pleasure and power, who have abandoned hope that you would see them and remember them. God, I pray that your cross would be a sign to them, that for them too, you came. I thank you, God, that the veil has been ripped open, the light has entered the world, and we can see clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, I pray that that light would continue to to grow in our own hearts and the light would dawn on those who are now in darkness.
Thank you, Jesus, for your great, great love. Help us, as we already prayed, to comprehend the height, the width, the length, the depth of your love for your people. Thank you for casting us upon the ocean of your goodness. We thank you, Jesus, now with our lips and with the entirety of our lives, that your name would be praised by all people. Amen.